Hi, this is Ben Lola, back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Today we're continuing our series celebrating our freedom in Christ as we study 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 6 to 16, as Dr. Newfeld brings us a message: husbands and wives need each other. Have you ever noticed that relationships are an interesting thing? For one, there are so many different kinds of relationships that people have with each other. A child to her parents, a wife to her husband, two friends whose friendship has spanned from childhood to adulthood, the relationship between a boss and an employee, a patient in the hospital and her relationship to her nurses, a person renting an apartment and his relationship to his landlord, a policeman and a speeding motorist, a voter and a politician, a shopper and a shopkeeper, a church member and her pastor, a teacher and a student. Well, you get the idea. Context determines the kind of relationship that exists. Now, I'm going to talk about the relationship between a husband and his wife or between a wife and her husband. What kind of a relationship is that? Now, before we read today's text, let's stretch our understanding that context determines relationship. Let's stretch that thought one thought further. Have you also noticed that the culture in which we live also determines the kind of relationships that exist? Here's an example. My father, when he was alive, had a great deal of difficulty adapting to Canadian culture. He'd been raised in a very different culture than the one he now lived in. When he was a boy, it was inconceivable that when he encountered an older man, that he would doff his hat to show respect. The aged, he was taught, deserved respect. But as he got older in Canadian culture, he noticed that when he walked down a sidewalk and encountered several young men walking toward him, they would often make him go around them. No one yielded to him, and sometimes he was even forced off the sidewalk. Well, he found that extremely painful and difficult to bear. Now, in defense of those young men, they lived in a culture where they had absolutely no social conventions that required they show respect to the aged. It never occurred to them that the aged deserved some kind of special treatment. For them, like for most of us, the culture in which they lived determined how they interacted and how they carried on a relationship with an old man that they encountered on a sidewalk. Now, I'm using all of that as an example of marriage. You know, for so many, the relationship they have in their marriage is determined by their culture, their family, their temperament, and so forth. And what I wish to communicate is that the Bible itself should determine the context of the kind of relationship a husband has with his wife and a wife with her husband. The first part of 1 Corinthians 11 is about head coverings, submission and leadership in marriage, and how easy it is for us to either read the words on leadership and submission in the context of what those words mean in our culture rather than what it means in the Bible. But before I get ahead of myself, let's read today's passage. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 7 to 16. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but the woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, a woman is not independent of a man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman, and all things are from God. 
Judge for yourselves, is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him, but if a woman has long hair, it is her glory? For her hair is given to her for a covering. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. Now, from this text, I want to accomplish four things. Number one, to remind us of the background. Two, to define the idea behind man was not created for woman, but woman for man. Three, to define the interdependence of man and woman. And four, to relate this to the cultural practices that we have today, or how Christian marriages ought to function today. So let's start with the beginning. What's the background for this passage? So let's remember the wider context. Paul has been talking about marriage. And so this is not a passage about the relationship between men and women in general, and it's not a passage about how leadership in the church ought to function. I mean, to get answers to those questions, we have to go to another Bible passage. This one specifically is about marriage. It has to do with a husband and a wife as they relate to each other in the context of prayer and worship and of God's calling upon their lives. This passage is specifically about how they should understand their relationship to each other and their relationship together as husband and wife as they relate to God. And the reason I make so much of that is that on occasion, I'm going to run into someone who thinks all women should submit to all men, and then they use this passage as their text. So it's so important that we don't misuse Bible passages. Instead, we're called upon to let the Bible say what it wants to say, not what we want it to say. See, when this text speaks of men and women, it's speaking about married men relating to their married wives within the context of worship in the local church. You know, and if I might take this just a bit further, I would add that there's a world of difference between the relationship that a unmarried man and a woman might have, let's say, as they enjoy friendship, leading perhaps to courtship. See, the minute they stand before a minister and the minute they repeat vows to one another under the lordship of Christ, their relationship at that moment is irrevocably altered. See, the context of marriage changes how they relate to each other. She doesn't submit to him in courtship, but if she agrees to marry him, she, if she's a believer, has then agreed to a relationship that is determined by the lordship of Christ. Let me illustrate that. Ephesians 5 is commonly used as a passage to describe Christian marriage. After describing the kind of relationship that a husband should have with his wife, one of leadership and submission, Paul then makes a surprising statement. Well, it's breathtaking. I'm reading Ephesians 5.32. He says, this mystery is profound, and I'm saying it refers to Christ and his church. And then reading that passage, the reader might be forgiven by saying, well, I thought we were talking about a man and his wife. But Paul has never lost sight of the most profound mystery of all. When a Christian man and a Christian woman repeat vows in an altar, they're not just committing themselves to faithfulness to each other. They're committing themselves in faithfulness to Christ and Christ who is their head has determined that he wants them in their union to carry out a role play that represents the relationship that Christ has to the church. It is this fact that is never lost in any New Testament passage that speaks about marriage. And that is also the background of 1 Corinthians 11. It's about a husband and a wife in submission to Christ who determines the kind of relationship that they're going to enjoy. Now to the second issue in the text. 
when Paul says, as he does in verse 7, that the man is the image and glory of God and the woman is the glory of man, he's speaking about the kind of relationship that exists in marriage. Do you hear that? That statement is specific to marriage. See, this is not an ontological statement about the essence of maleness and femaleness. See, in creation, both men and women are in the image of God. And even though the woman is created after the man and out of the man, God does this specifically for their purpose in marriage. See, I want you to notice the formula. The man, we are told, is the image and glory of God. And then notice how the wording changes. The woman, we're told, is the glory of man, not the image and glory of man. So you see that. Paul is not saying that the woman is the image of man. That would be incorrect. Both men and women in creation are equally in the image of God. Woman is not in any way inferior to man. Every woman fully shares with every man the joy of being created fully in God's image and is in no way inferior to the man. See, we need to hear this and assimilate that. Even while God assigns a different role to the man and to the woman, the role difference in no way assumes that one role is inferior to the other. The difference in marriage is found in this word glory. So what is this thing called glory, which the husband reflects from God and the woman reflects from her husband? Now, remember, Paul is taking us to the creation account found in Genesis 2, verse 18. And there we read, Then the Lord God said, It is not good that a man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Now, the man is given a command, rule over the creation. Then God says, it isn't good this way. He needs a helper. The man is charged with ruling, and the woman is called to enhance or manifest his authority or his glory in ruling over the works of God's hands. She will be his helper. Does that mean that the woman has a lesser glory? Well, absolutely not. We have so much more that we need to learn from this passage. This month, we celebrate the commitment of our monthly partners with the launching of a new monthly partner initiative, the 1119 Fellowship. Based in Deuteronomy, the 1119 Fellowship is critical to our continued efforts to share the gospel with a new generation and to help teach in a way that can be trusted and that will build a firm foundation for a life in Christ. As of this past July, we celebrate 674 monthly partners, all committed to sustaining and growing the mission of Bible teaching you can trust. In the months ahead, we're asking you to join our monthly partner 1119 Fellowship as we march toward 1,000 participants. Join us this month, become a part of the 1119 Fellowship, and for more information or to sign up today, visit backtothebible.ca fellowship or simply give us a call at 1-800-663-2425. Together, let us ensure that the Word of God is being declared to a new generation. I'm reading Psalm 46, verse 1. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Or listen to Psalm 54, verse 4. Behold, God is my helper, The Lord is the upholder of my life. Or Psalm 118, verse 7. The Lord is on my side as my helper. I shall look in triumph on those who hate me. See, there are numerous occasions in the Bible where God is described as our helper. 
Now, from this, it should be apparent that a helper is not an inferior role. Indeed, God is our God, and yet he is not diminished in any way when he comes to our aid, when he saves us and delivers us and helps us in so many ways. And so when in Genesis 2, we read that the woman was created to be the man's helper, we shouldn't think of this in any other way than the way in which the Bible defines the role of the helper. If both man and woman are created in the image of God, then both man and woman are equal and have equal worth and have equal standing before God and whose partnership in marriage is a partnership of two equals. And while they are fully equal, yet God in his divine wisdom assigns to each, to the man and to the woman, a unique role. See, here's an easy one. God has uniquely assigned to the woman the role of the childbearer. And so when God the Son is born into this world, he would be born of a woman and not of a man. This doesn't make the man inferior in any sense, but it is God who determines the role of both men and women. And so in the marriage bond, in infinite wisdom, God assigns roles. It is, according to Paul, the man's role to, in some fashion, to be the glory of God and the woman's role to be, in some fashion, the glory of her husband. See, I know of no better illustration than this, something of my own personal story. See, when I was in high school, I didn't know the Lord. And furthermore, I viewed my high school experience as, well, playtime and as little other. I was an undisciplined student, and I graduated from high school on a technicality. My marks were very poor. But along the way, in the mercy I will never be able to fathom, the Holy Spirit drew me to Jesus, and I bent my knee before his throne, and I confessed Christ as my Savior and Lord. I was born again through grace. And along the way, from my vantage point, the impossible happened. I sensed God calling me to pastoral ministry, but I had never learned how to study. I did spend two years in Bible school, which helped me considerably, but skills and discipline required for the calling was only then beginning to develop in my life. When I asked my glory, Kathy, to be my wife, I told her in my marriage proposal that God had called me to be a pastor. I asked her what God had called her to do, and I'll, I'll never forget her answer. She told me that she had no calling to be a pastor's wife, but she did have a calling to be my wife. And if that's what God had called me to do, she would put all her energy in assuring that I would fulfill that calling. She's kept her word. And I wish I had time to explain how it was that Kathy mentored me, teaching me how to study. Oh, she was earning her own degree, but she felt it was her calling to be my helper, and she was. I pursued three successive degrees with her at my side, and all the while never took my eyes off the calling to lead and disciple and mentor God's people as a pastor and the calling to reach out to the unsaved. See, in all of that, Kathy never abandoned her role. She would stand with me as my helper. She was indispensably at my side, and I learned to rely on her. See, I had a vision and calling from God, and that's to God's glory. And she had a call to ensure that I didn't fail, and that's to my glory. Kathy is my glory. If I have any glory, if anything of the glory of God is done in my ministry, it was together with the woman that God gifted to me. She is the woman that God gave me as my helper. See, it's not infrequent that I meet a couple that doesn't understand this sense of a joint calling, nor of the uniqueness of the role that God in infinite wisdom assigned to both husband and wife. 
Instead of adopting God's call on their marriage, I often find a husband seeking his own call, and then the wife seeking her own call, and then they learn to live together and respect each other and pursue their own unique paths. The two have not become one. Every once in a while, I'll meet a woman who will not help her husband. And every once in a while, I'll meet a man who will not fulfill his call to lead for the glory of God. This is not God's intention. God did not want a husband and a wife as unisex partners to each pursue their own unique goals and then get along and live together somehow. See, the tragedy is so many couples do not understand God's design in their marriages and so allow other contexts to define the kind of relationships that they have. Now we're ready for verse 10. This is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head, says Paul, because of the angels. Now, in Paul's day, women praying and prophesying showed their unique privilege to join in worship alongside of their husbands, but the head covering showed that she understood, along with her husband, God's infinitely wise designs on their life together. Now, regarding this reference to the angels, you know, there are so many different views on this passage. It may be that Paul's referring to the fact that angels also attended the public worship of God's people. So the reference to because of might mean that the angels rejoice when a husband and a wife yielded to God are in worship together. You know, but in truth, I can't say I know for sure what that phrase refers to. You know, I think we might have to wait until glory when God explains it to us. Okay, we have made sure that we understand that this passage is about marriage and that it also defines the unique role that both the husband and the wife play in a marriage dedicated to Christ. Now, let's follow this to Paul's conclusion, and that's found in verses 11 and 12. There Paul writes, Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman, for as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman and all things are from God. Now, these are two verses, if properly understood, could save many a marriage from divorce. See, I love the word interdependence. You know, it's one thing to say that a husband is dependent on his wife or that a wife on her husband, but it's quite another thing to say that in marriage, both the husband and his wife have together as a couple a joint calling from God. And God has so designed their relationship that the other is the complement. In order to fulfill their task from God, they are dependent on each other. The other, the complement, plays that role which they cannot play alone. Only the husband can be the husband. And only the wife can be the wife. God so designed the other by virtue of their gender, to play a unique role that cannot be played by the other. You know, it's for that reason that we will not permit, for instance, homosexuality, for in that case, there is no complement. And Christ has arranged marriage for his glory and his design. He's Lord, and we in grateful adoration allow him to set the design for our marriage. And this is reflected in creation. Woman was created from man. It was not the other way around. And yet all people are now born of woman, and it's not the other way around. See, the other is the complement, and that makes the couple complete. And with that, Paul comes full circle. Taking us back to the issue of cultural practices, we look now to verses 13 and 14. 
Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory, for her hair is given to her as a covering. I think without getting into all the specifics, you know, we can easily see how this works out in the cultural context of a local community. When men and women clothe themselves differently and appear unique to their gender, they publicly express the kind of relationship that Christian men and women foster. It's an expression that who we are on the outside and who we are on the inside is in line and expresses the same values, same truths, the same radical obedience to the structure that our Creator wants in all of our relationships. And with that, Paul ends by stressing that he encourages God's people not to be contentious in this matter. After all, this entire section of Scripture has been about Christian freedom. He's encouraging men and women to use their freedom and not to test the boundaries of what they can get away with, but to use their freedom to express their joy in being willingly submissive to their Lord and Savior. You know, in our world of gender confusion and broken marriages, God himself has declared that he has a pattern in which a man and a woman can join hands in marriage and really say, this is how we will live with each other until death separates us. John, I think you've gone through this passage and this message in a masterful way, but I'm interested to know a little bit more about your own personal connection with it. What was Kathy's role, your wife's role, in accomplishing what God had called you to do? Yeah, I mean, Kathy has always expressed herself that way to me, that God has called her, you know, to be a help to me. And I want to say, Ben, that that's not to say that Kathy doesn't have, she has her own career. She is a a wound care and ostomy clinician, and I'm very proud of what she does and and her own accomplishments. But I I have this sense in this marriage that I've shared with her now for so many years, I I have this sense that this woman would follow me to the ends of the earth. Uh, Her only question for me would always be, are you sure that God has called you to do this? And she really would do that. And wherever we've gone, she has seen a key part of her role is to help me to become all that God has wanted me to be. And uh, I'm overwhelmed by that, Ben. I, I find myself more in love with her all of the time because of that and because of her commitment to me. And uh, so I find myself deeply blessed by the woman that God has given me. And I use every opportunity that I can to honor her publicly uh, because of who she is to me. Thanks so much, John. Back to the Bible Canada, leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day. We're excited at Back to the Bible Canada, laugh again and in doubt to announce a national virtual ministry event this September 27th called The Gathering. Join us in celebrating our common passion for the Bible and the significance of teaching its truth to a new generation. So we invite you to join us on Facebook Live September 27th at 5 p.m. Pacific, 8 p.m. Eastern, right across the nation with special guest Dr. John Newfeld, Phil Calloway, musical guests including friends Shane and Angela Weeb, and many more to be announced. Join us for music, Bible teaching, laughter, ministry news, and more. Find out more at backtothebible.ca slash events. Visit the Back to the Bible Canada Facebook page or call us 
at 1-800-663-2425. Join us Sunday, September 27th for The Gathering.